Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want 20% discount on the best earplugs for exercise? Ultra earplugs go in your ears and stay in there. Go to ultraaudio.com, that's U-L-T-R-O, and use the discount code DOM20. That'll save you around $35. That's ultraaudio.com, U-L-T-R-O, and the discount code DOM20. Hello and welcome to Runners Only with Dom Harvey. On this episode, Joseph Sullivan. Joseph Sullivan truly is a great New Zealander. He's a hero, but I feel like he's kind of one of those under-the-radar heroes where the name might ring a bell, but you can't quite recall where you know it from. And that is just the way this unassuming firefighter and father from Bay of Plenty likes it. Joseph won an Olympic gold medal in 2012 for rowing. He retired prematurely in 2014 after being screwed over by rowing New Zealand, something which broke him and took him a while to recover from. We get into that in the podcast. Since then... He's found a new purpose in the New Zealand Fire Service, he got married, he's had two kids, and he managed to train as a grinder for Team New Zealand and won the America's Cup twice. It was such an honour to sit down with Joseph at the uh, Kawarau Fire Station to cover all aspects of his remarkable life so far, the very high highs and the very deep lows. Hope you guys love this conversation with Joseph Sullivan. Hey, runners only, yeah, yeah, let's get it started. Hey, hey, this is runners only with Dom Harley. Uh, fast paced, slow and steady, anywhere you coming. Uh, just want to connect for everyone who loves running. This is runners only, yeah, yeah let's get it started. Hey, hey, this is runners only with Dom Harley. Uh, fast paced, slow and steady, anywhere you coming. Uh, just want to connect for everyone who loves running. Hey, runners only with Dom Harley. Runners only with Dom Harvey and Joseph Sullivan. G'day, mate. Yeah, how you doing? Doing very well, thank you. So we're we're in one of the offices at the <laughs> Kawarau Fire Station. Yep, yep, that's the one. And this is work. This is home. Yeah, it's a it's a different kind of situation being able to do a podcast at work, but it's it's cool. Yeah. Now your boss warned me on the way in that if there's a, a call out or some sort of like siren or emergency that um we're gonna have to pause this. Yeah, literally um, the tones will go down and I'll just shoot off and jump in the track and we'll be gone. But what is the what's the likelihood of that? Can you go for weeks without a call out or <laughs> is it not? Yeah, we can yeah, literally we can go weeks or a month without a call out, but then some days we have three or four and in a set we could have up to ten. So yeah, it's a varying kind of situation depending on weather and conditions and and what people are doing out in the public. Mm. It's quite a humbling job, isn't it? It's a very rewarding job, but I'm, I'm guessing here no one gives a flying fuck about, <laughs> about what you did 10 years ago or what you did two years ago. You know, all these incredible achievements you have. You're just one of the team here. Yeah, just one of the boys, um, which is cool. It's probably what I prefer. It's, it's kind of humbling being around these kind of guys. Everyone's been in different situations and, and had some um, hard times in their lives and some good times in their lives. So, but... Yeah, it's just a good bunch of, of people uh, working hard for the same goal of kind of protecting the community the best we can. Yeah, that's awesome. That, that's um, part of the reason I wanted to get you on the podcast. I feel like you don't 
necessarily get the the, rec- the name recognition or the recognition <laughs> that you that you deserve. Like I, I had a phone call from a friend on the drive here, and uh, I said, "She said, where are you off to?" I said, "I'm going to Carwoodow to um, record a podcast with Joseph Sullivan." And she said, "Oh, the name rings a bell," and I'm like. This guy won a gold medal in 2012, <laughs> one of the most incredible sporting moments ever. He's won two America's Cup. But it's just, yeah, it feels like it's one of those things. Like if, you, if, you, if you've ran long enough and you win enough gold medals, people remember you. Like the Valerie Adams, your Lisa Carringtons, Eric Murray, whatever. Yeah. But you win one gold medal and then I suppose it's like a, like a flash for a couple of months and then uh, you sort of disappear into oblivion <laughs> a little bit. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, I, I guess it kind of depends. I guess it the London Olympics, there were so many of us that won at the same time, which kind of minimises the impact, <laughs> minimizes yeah, the impact yeah. of, of what you've done. But at the same time, it's not anything I've ever chased being famous or being recognised or anything like that. I almost recommend, or I almost enjoy the fact that people don't know who I am. When I walk down the street, I have a bit more privacy and um, can kind of just enjoy what I've achieved and yeah, get on with life. Yeah, so so you won a gold medal in um, twenty twelve at the the London Games, London Olympics, and yeah. that was with um, Nathan yeah. Cohen. Yep. Yeah. So, what was the sport? What was the event? Uh, the men's double scales and rowing. It was it was um, called the sporting moment of the decade because like you guys weren't sort of even in the medal hunt. I watched it on YouTube just the other day. I forgot how good this was. Like you guys were so far behind, and in the last five hundred meters, you just smoked everybody. Was that sort of the strategy of you guys? Were you were you always a come from behind duo? Yeah, it's, it's never been a strategy to be that far behind. Um, it's never ideal, but I guess for us, we, we can't do it any other way. We Nathan's really strong throughout the middle of the race, and I seem to be strong at the start and the finish, um, and we kind of blend our, our kind of strengths into one. And I think in the races like that, we, we have been known for our sprints at the finish, so everyone kind of knew we were capable of that, and I think they were doing their best to create that buffer between them and us coming into their last 500 so yeah they were doing their best to get as far away from us as possible and we we're doing our best just to hold on giving ourselves the opportunity to to sprint right at the end and yeah it was a weird race because we were working our asses off the whole time Nathan was telling me we we're right up in the in the mix of it and we weren't um, he's quite good at painting a good picture <laughs> to keep me motivated well, is this during the race <laughs> during the yeah, race yeah. yeah I can't see anything so I'm I'm literally at the back of the boat looking backwards so I can't see anyone um, Nathan gets to, to have a look around and, and make all the calls and, and kind of um, deal with the positions and stuff like that. And yeah, so he's looking around, knowing that we're behind and telling me positive things to keep me really motivated and we're into it. And yeah, we kind of get into that last 500, and that's kind of where we both just dig in and get it, give it everything we can. And I remember going into the last kind of 200 meters thinking, holy shit, we're, we're in the mix. And I was thinking, holy, holy crap, we're going to get a, a bronze medal. How cool was this? And <laughs> crossed the line, and I was pretty stoked. I was like, holy shit, we just got a bronze medal. And then it wasn't until we looked up at the big screen and like, holy shit, we've actually, we've actually won. So, like, but did, did Nathan know straight? He, he must have known all along that you won a gold. Uh, I think so. Yeah, I think at the end he knew, right? Because he could see what was kind of happening. But but are you, are you guys both so fucked to speak at that point? So, pretty much in that yeah. last five hundred, like our visions are disappearing and kind of you're just not aware of what's around you and you're so focused on just trying to get that boat across the line I didn't really uh, take in that we'd actually passed anyone 
You, you look completely spent. Yeah. You look happy as well. Did you think that you were like a third, maybe? Yeah, so I was pretty stoked with third, and then you can actually see the moment on TV, like on the <laughs> on the video when we look up at the screen, we look left, and then we're like, "Holy fuck, we just won!" <laughs> like, How good! Like, oh yeah. my god, I've got look, I've got goosebumps <laughs> with you retelling that story. You you can't have been surprised though, because you guys won the world champs in 2010, um, the world champs in 2011. So you you must have been going in as the the team to beat. Like if you looked at our history, we were the team to beat, but. Our lead into the Olympics was pretty terrible. We had a really bad run um, in the World Cups, uh, the two previous World Cups before going to the Olympics. I think we got maybe second to last in the first World Cup, and then how we, far how far before the Olympics are we talking? Like a couple of months like or something? Six weeks. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, what was happening? Were you just off form, or I think we'd gone through such a massive training block back in New Zealand, and we knew we'd put ourselves in the hole, and we would we were prepared for it. We thought we were mentally. Um, and we were just doing everything we could to get ourselves in a good position. We did a summer uh, winter series here in New Zealand before we left, and the selectors took us aside and absolutely just ripped us to pieces, saying we're we're not where we should be. We're crap. We shouldn't even be going. Like what what are we doing? And for some reason, although we were we were just knackered from training, and then you think you're mentally prepared, but then someone in that position to come and say that to us just before we go overseas for our biggest event, um, really put a spanner in the works mentally for us. And we were kind of, I don't i don't know if we panicked, but we started trying to figure out like what was going wrong and we started looking in all the wrong places and uh, we started changing our settings and we swapped seats in the boat for a little bit and like we just did stupid shit that we should have never done and we should have just relied on what we'd already been doing in training and, and just remembered we're all doing it for the right reason. Yeah, yeah. We kind of threw all that stuff at ourselves and it kind of just um, blew us out a bit mm. mentally. And then we were <laughs> almost fighting each other, not f- like physically fighting or mentally fighting or abusive, but like, we were both trying to work so hard that we'd stop gelling as a team. And you start sort of blaming each other almost for... Yeah, but... You're almost blaming each other without saying it, which is worse. It's okay. getting more internal when we were... It just comes from a place of frustration, though, right? Yeah, pure frustration. And it, it didn't even need to happen, though. That was the thing. Like, It was purely from someone commenting um, when we were at our lowest, like physically, just because we've been training so hard, to throw that at us. And then all of a sudden we start thinking about stuff that that's not even an issue. And it took us so long... Um, just to get back on form and realise nothing was actually wrong and we, we had all the potential we needed to to do what we had to. This was like 10, 11 years ago that this happened. It feels like it would be unacceptable now in the environment we're living in and the awareness that we've got about mental health and high-performance sport. Yeah. Shit, you guys must have been... You look back now and you, you're pissed off with it? Does it make you angry? Um, I don't know. It's, it's one of those things, it kind of... Although it was shit at the time and it was really frustrating and all that kind of stuff was happening... The result we got once we started figuring out just going back to basics was so much more impressive and it kind of just got us fired up again. Um, like with all that shit going wrong and um, us not really gelling together, things were going really bad. We were training in Belgium and it rained for like six, probably six weeks straight. We'd be biking to training in the rain, rowing in the rain, coming back in the rain and it was just depressing and... Um, Things our coach was saying to us weren't helping either. Like we were almost getting really pissed off each other for things that didn't exist. And one day, me and Nathan 
training solidly and living in the same room and biking to training together for a solid week and we didn't actually talk to each other once. Like we were mm. we were that bad at that point. Like we didn't hate each other, we were just frustrated and we didn't know what to do. But we were there, with must, each other for 24 hours a day. And we, the air must have been so thick though. Yeah, it was. How do, like how do you not end up coming to blows and having a punch <laughs> up in that sort of environment? I don't know. Or was there still like a deep-seated love there between you, you think? I don't know if it was love, but it was more, I guess it's more respect. Like, we both yeah. knew the goal we wanted, and we both knew we were working as hard as we possibly could to achieve that goal. And, like, as frustrated as you can get at each other, you both know you're in it for the same thing. So that respect and, and all that was still there. And it wasn't until one day we kind of just came to a heads, and it wasn't even angry. It was just, like, frustration, and we decided what the hell are we doing we're just going to go back to basics and sort it out and then we had another chat and we're like we need we need to get out of here so um, me and Nathan rented a car we were going to take a weekend off we've been training for so long and we thought screw it we'll, we'll go find some sun so we thought we'd drive from <laughs> Belgium into into France um, we'd stop at a hotel and my, my, my geography is terrible how far uh, Belgium to France is like an hour or two okay like Auckland to Hamilton sort yeah of. Auckland okay. to Hamilton but we hadn't really planned it out too well. We rented this car on the Friday. We drove into France. We thought we were going to stop halfway in a place called Dijon and have a nap and um, we'll carry on to our destination the next day. And we, we got to Dijon at like, I think at 11.30 at night, tried to get a hotel. <laughs> and it was the first day of summer holidays in Europe. And there was not one hotel or anything available. So we are like, ah, screw it. So we both took turns at driving and the other sleeping, and we we literally drove, I think we drove 1,200 miles, oh or 1,200 Ks. We drove from one side of France to the other, and we ended up in um, Marseille at like 5.30 in the morning. And this is before your cell phone had like Google and, and all that, like internet. <laughs> I don't even know, like we, we must have gone to a bad part of Marseille because it just wasn't that pretty. And we just looked up <laughs> places that were really good, and Marseille was one of those places that... Everyone's like, oh, it's amazing there. So we turn up in Marseille and we're like, this is a bit crap. So we find the local McDonald's, get our computers out again, and we're like, Google best beaches near Marseille. And we found this tiny little beachside town. And we drove for another hour and a half, turned up in this town, got a hotel, and it was just sunny. And it was just such a good um, mental relief for the both of us. We are away from our coach. We were away from everyone else in the training group. Um, I think, I'm guessing in that lengthy car ride, like the silence was broken, you would have been chatting with each other. But I suppose bonded, well, bonded by your disobedience. We were kind of chatting, but also like we got so tired that we had to have turns, <laughs> of, we had to have turns of driving. So oh, yeah. one was sleeping, one was driving. So kind of got to Marseille, uh, to this town in the little seaside town. I can't even remember the name of it, but it was amazing. And we went down to the beach. We had our bikes with us, so we had our bikes and a tiny little car driving across France and. Uh, we just went for a bike ride. We found this little um, little yacht and went for a sail and went for a swim. And just the mental break from being outside of a training group that was so stressed and focused on the Olympics was literally everything we needed. We had a really good break, had a really good sweet, uh, sleep, had some real good food. And then the next day we took our bikes into the mountains and did a bit of a bike ride around there, had turns driving to the top of a hill while the other descended and... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it was it was incredible, and then if you if, if one of you asked off or something, uh, you would have been sent home. We were, disgrace. Yeah, 
we were very cautious. We, we knew <laughs> brakes on all the way down. We knew what was on the line. Um, yeah, we definitely yeah. weren't doing our normal descents, but I think it was just the fact we were away from everything, and we were just two guys just having a good road trip, just a reset. Yeah, just two mates. It was back to normal. It was really cool, and we chatted about everything and nothing. And yeah, we had a few weird situations like we get to one town and we needed to refuel and. No credit cards were accepted, so we had to figure out how to do stuff like that. But it just kind of added to the trip, and it was it was just good fun. And we literally turned up late that night. We had to drive all the way back. And, <laughs> Look at this whole thing and, sounds disastrous. And, and no one could get a hold of us because we we're in a different <laughs> a different country, so our, our roaming wasn't working. And I remember our coach having a go at us for being away, and like, how could we not let him know? And we're like, we're grown adults. Like, we know what we're doing. Mm. We were just having a good break and we needed it. I think before we left, we told everyone we were going to Bruges, which was like an hour away from where we were staying. We actually drove to the south of France, but like, <laughs> when everyone asked where we went, we were like, oh, we went to the south of France. And, oh, and bullshit. We were, yeah, we were telling the complete truth and absolutely no one believed us. It was, it was so funny. Yeah, you um, needed like Instagram so you could check in. Yeah, but literally after that one weekend – we were on fire again. Like we, we went into the training pieces the next day and no one could touch us. We were we were back and it was such a good feeling to just be on form again and and it was something as simple as having a break. Like when you're mentally down and you're mentally drained and everything's just crushing you not physically but just mentally in your head, having a break and switching off from that and just resetting was the best thing that had ever happened to us. And I think if we had not done that trip, there was no way we would have won. Yeah, isn't that funny, eh? Because, you know, there's the years and years and hours and hours of training that go into it, which obviously helped you win. But at the end of the day, just a simple, unorthodox team-building exercise, essentially. Yeah, literally. Which no one would <laughs> ever have approved. No, not at all. No, Like, if we went and talked to anyone about that or asked management to let us do that, they would have laughed in our faces and mm. told us we were crazy, but... Yeah, sometimes just doing something, like just hanging out as mates, was the most important thing for us. Mm. And it's, it's it's kind of scary to think how many teams or how many crews have have been in that situation and, and not come out of it the right way. For something as simple as just having a break. But somewhere in New Zealand, there's one of those selectors that put a rocket up you guys <laughs> and said you, you were underperforming. And what the fuck's going on? Yeah. That is probably now sitting back going, yeah, I, I gave them a rocket and, uh, <laughs> and uh, that definitely helped. Yeah, yeah. Did it? I don't think so. I think it was no. way worse than it was worse than anything. Just threw you threw you both off your game well, in a way. It not only threw us, it threw our coach. And, and it was funny because we'd even talked about what where we were trying to aim for and what we were trying to do. We were trying to be as tired and as fucked as we could before we got on the plane to go to Europe. And that's what we were doing. And then we were in that position, and the day before we left for Europe, someone t- comes and tells you you're crap, and it just starts making your mind oh. boggle. It's insane, but, yeah, I guess depending on which, uh, which perspective you look at it, yeah. they probably, like the selector probably thought, that's what we needed and that's what they gave <laughs> us. But You're welcome. Little did they know we almost <laughs> self-destructed, but um, yeah. I think it was purely the fact that we managed to like after all that frustration, just talk it out as, as two mates and, and get it sorted. And mm. yeah, we're lucky we did. 
And what's your what's your relationship like now? Like how often do you guys see each other? You go through something incredible like that. It link, links you for life. Yeah, I, I guess we had probably a little bit of a break from each other after the Olympics. Yeah, we'd, yes, like we'd, yeah. we'd spent more time with each other than we had our own partners and families and, and things like that. So, yeah, it probably was a good year. And now we're yeah we're good mates. We're about to do um, the five passes bike challenge in November um, down in the South Island. And yeah, every time I get down to Christchurch, we catch up. Or if he's up here, we catch up. And yeah, I guess we'll always have that bond of the shit that we went through to to get to our dreams. So yeah, and just this um, sporting moment together that just links you for life. And it's something I suppose as you get older, you look back and it gets even more and more special in a lot of ways. Yeah, that one is like for me. That's probably the best award you can get because it's voted by the public and and that's something that's What's pretty that special. What's that one? The sporting moment of the decade. Yeah, the sporting yeah, moment. Yeah. yeah, it was. I remember getting told by lots of people that like they were watching our race and they thought we were going to lose, so they changed the channel. And then they looked at the news the next day and we won, so they had to rewatch it. But I guess as as Kiwis, we don't like watching a Kiwi team get their ass kicked. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're a Warriors fan, in which case yeah, yeah. you've grown an immunity. <laughs> Yeah, but it was it was one of those cool races, I guess. Rowing's not really a ra- like a sport where you watch someone get their ass kicked and then sprint for a finish. It's it's not normally like that. If you're getting your ass handed to you, you normally finish that way too. So mm. it was it was very cool to be able to do that. So you won an Olympic um, gold medal. What's it like after that? Is it a, is it a, <coughs> a massive celebration or are you, are you just too fucked? Um, the night we won, we literally finished the race and. Normally when you finish a race, you go do a big warm-down period and, and get your legs moving again, but you you cross the line, you go to the podium, you do media chats, you go on the podium, you, you meet all, you go do a press conference, and then I think we went back to a, like a, um, a cafe bar near the lake and we did another six hours of media chat. Oh, actually, and yeah, I we, was probably one of them. I apologise. That's <laughs> so good, but we were... We were absolutely stuffed, and our legs had <laughs> legs had crammed seized up, up, and we were just seized. Um, and we'd had like I think we had like two beers, and after training for so like training so hard for so long, yeah, and not getting yeah. on the piss or anything like that, two beers went straight to the head, and we just like everyone was like, "Do you want to go out tonight?" And we're like, "No, we just want to go back to the hotel and do nothing." Just exhausted. We were exhausted, and then. Then I suppose you have to get up the next morning for yeah, to next, do seven sharp or yeah. The next whatever. morning was a four thirty start to oh. to be live on television for six o'clock news. Yeah, um, which was cool because it was our kind of opportunity to thank everyone um, that had played a part in in our achievement. And like you, you kind of see an achievement and you think those guys have worked really hard, but there's physios, there's strength and conditioning trainers, there's there's office staff that help a lot, and then there's your families and the people in your communities that got you into the sport. So to be able to thank them uh, live on television, I'm pretty sure most of them were still pissed, <laughs> <laughs> was just a cool opportunity and, and something I'll always be grateful for too. Yeah, how long are you, how long are you riding a high for? Like how long are you carrying the medal around for? How, <laughs> how, how, like how long is it until um, until the you know, the fuss around it dies down? Um, is it a few months? A couple yeah, of months? Yeah, it's a good couple of months. Yeah. Like school visits and whatnot. Yeah, school visits, and you come back to New Zealand and people kind of recognise you 
that yeah. would have never seen you before. And probably luckily for me, people think I'm a lot bigger than I am. Yeah, so you are quite I, short for the sport, aren't you? I'm literally, I was at the London Olympics, I was the shortest and lightest heavyweight rower in the world. <laughs> um, so people could have had, have this expectation that I'm some different person and then they see me and they're like, oh, you're just just a normal guy. And I'm like, yeah, the hype was pretty cool. Um, the parties in London were incredible. Definitely hit it hard the day after we had our night of rest. Um, we're like, are we talking in the Olympic Village or in London City? No, nah, so in London town? there's no real party in the village mm. till the Olympic Games are finished. And right. we kind of get out of there straight away and head back to New Zealand. But sponsors like Omega and Red Bull and all that put on these big extra, extravagant parties um, all across New Zealand, uh, all across London and Soho and, and things like that. So yeah, we got to get out and enjoy that. And then you come back from those big parties and the, the food court's still open and Free McDonald's. Free McDonald's. Oh, there's Eric Murray sitting over there with a thousand. Eric, Eric's already there, set up. Um, but yeah, no, it was it was probably the best time of my life at that at that point, and it was just so much fun being able to be a part of it. And I was pretty lucky being my first Olympics um, and having that experience from Nathan. He kind of said to me before we even got to the Olympics, "Don't get caught up in all the hype." Like, we're here to do that oh, one job. Yeah, because he was there in um, 2008, and he rode with Rob Waddell. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he was the more experienced one. Yeah, definitely more experienced and had kind of gone through it and dealt with not succeeding, which would have been pretty rough. But, yeah, what he, what he said to me made a lot of sense. You're not there as a tourist. You're there to, to complete your job um, and your goals, and, and then after that you can enjoy yourself. Yeah. We definitely did that. Yeah, that's the thing. I, I suppose that's tough because there's a lot of people who um, probably like scrape in with selection and they're lucky to be there. And they're, they're, uh, if they make a final, it would be incredible, but they're not expected to finish anywhere near near the top. But you guys, because of your success in the World Champs in 2010 and 2011, I suppose there was like real heat on you. Um, I think because we hadn't succeeded in the, the World Cups leading in, the media took all the pressure off us because they thought we were just blown <laughs> out. So th- that was almost a blessing in disguise for us, like – we were kind of overlooked, which was perfect because it took all that pressure off and all we had to do was go and do what we wanted to and that was to win anyway. So that was really nice and we didn't have to do all the media interviews before and have that expectation. So, yeah, we were as bad as the situation was leading into it. It was almost a blessing for us as well. So that was kind of cool. But, yeah, you can definitely see how people get caught up in, in making sure they're at the opening and, and going to all these different um, events around the Olympics before they race and just losing focus on what they're mm. actually there for. Yeah. And that's that's always sad to see. And and how long um, do you carry the medal around for? Because I, <laughs> I, I suppose it's one of those things for a while. People ask where the medal is or they want to see yeah. it or they want to touch it or they want to put it between their teeth. Yeah, my, my medal definitely took an ass kicking. Um, <laughs> it was in my pocket most of the time and – especially at the Olympics, like if you ever needed a ticket to get into thing or yeah, get through security, right, right. you just pull out the medal and they let you straight through, which was really cool. So I got to see people like Usain Bolt race and oh, sure. and, and things like that when I was um, not completely hungover. But, yeah, I think coming back to New Zealand, I didn't really lose too much sight of it. And then for a good solid two years, because people always asked where it was, it sat in the glove box in my car. Mm. Um, so it was always kind of there. Yeah, Luckily, my handy. car never got stolen, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. It was always just in the glove box. And um, so, so what happened then between like twenty twelve and twenty sixteen? Like, I, I suppose what I'm asking <laughs> is like, why why did you and Nathan Cohen not become like Bond and Murray or um, and another you know any other like um, iconic uh, Olympian that backs it up two or three times? 
Yeah, I think after London, we kind of both talked about Nathan said he wanted to have a break from rowing and was going to have that. And then I talked to the management and they kind of told me I could have four months off before I needed to be back in the team. Um, so we were both kind of doing our own thing for that little bit of time and, and being under all that stress from rowing together for so long, we were kind of not, we weren't the best of mates, but we had that mutual respect. Um, but he went off and did his thing and I kind of... Uh, went off to enjoy having a break and Mahe asked me if I wanted to do the coast to coast and I thought that was pretty cool so I was training for that and then a month into my break my coach came back and said I need to be training again because everyone's going really fast and I was like I don't, I don't really care. Oh, was like, one month into the four month break? Yeah one month into my four month break I got told I need to be back training because everyone's going really quick and I'm like well that's really nice but it's four years till the next Olympics. Like we don't need to be on form yet. Yeah, you got to peak at like, the right time. Just give me a give me a bit of time, and he kind of just started putting the pressure on me to start training again. And reluctantly, I think after like six weeks off, I started turning up at training again, and that was just demoralising. I just didn't want to be there. I wasn't enjoying it because I didn't come back when he told me to. I wasn't getting put in the the crew boats, and I was getting chucked in the single, which I didn't enjoy it at the time and I just really hated training for that whole summer. My coach became a selector and uh, it all kind of started going downhill from there. He was telling me we needed to do all this stuff and I was like, okay, sweet. So I was achieving everything he wanted me to achieve and I just wasn't doing it with the same vigour that he wanted. And then all of a sudden um, it came to trials. I was pretty keen to be in the quad because the double wasn't really happening and he literally just wouldn't put me in the crew boats for training and then came to trials and my trials just went to shit. Pretty sure they were just trying to get rid of me at the, that point. I'd said something to our coach during the season that all the guys um, were feeding to me because they thought I'd have some rapport with him. So everyone was kind of feeding me what they didn't like and I was talking to him, thinking we had a rapport and we could chat about things like that. Thinking you were bros because you've been and through then, this amazing thing together. Yeah, yeah, and then all of a sudden it was like... I was he just went cold. I was getting shot as the messenger, and yeah, he just went dark on me, and I just was pushed out of the team pretty much. So you were sort of unceremoniously dumped, really. Yeah, pretty much. So the next uh, trial we went through the seat racing, I was getting put in the boat that was going the slowest each time, and they were using that as a factor to tell me that I wasn't going well, and and it was weird because I would literally do a race, and I'm like, they're going to put me in this boat next, and that would happen, and. It was it was weird seeing my own demise. Are you saying and recognising this from the benefit of like a lot of hindsight, or could you sort of see it happening at the time in slow mo? I could see it happening as it was happening, and and it was really demoralising. Um, and then come to the naming of the team, and I didn't get named, and then I get named as a reserve. I kind of sucked it up, and I was like, right, we've still got three years till the next Olympics. Like I can come back from this. I've been tested before. Um, just go with it. So I. I went and did the single as the reserve for the team and then they tell me I wasn't expected to achieve anything. Like, they know I'm just the reserve for this thing and then I get made to race as the single and then they use those results against me the next year saying that I went crap in the single and I didn't deserve this and I didn't deserve that. And I'm like, I just spent the last four, five years trying to perfect my technique in a double. Like, yeah. I wasn't a single sculler anymore. Yeah, from that... It was another crappy year of training in, in summer and then came to selection again and they named me as a reserve and I was like, nah, I'm out. Yeah, so you 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 so you left on, I guess, on your own terms in the way, but you were sort of 
like pushed in a yeah, way. It was yeah, it was a pushed pushed retreat, I guess. You you must have felt just such a sense of betrayal. I was disillusioned. I, I didn't know what to do. I was completely lost. Yeah, it was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Yeah, how was your how was your mental health through that? It was terrible. Yeah, I, really. Yeah, I was. I remember finishing and I just because I'd thrown all my eggs into one basket. Like getting to the Olympics was everything that I'd focused on. I kind of went to university, but it wasn't for me. And I was like, screw it, I'm just going to put everything into rowing and, and get this medal and, and see what happens from there. Yeah, but, when you say university wasn't for you, it was just like the studying aspect of it. Yeah, like yeah. I did a I did a full semester at university and I just didn't enjoy it. I didn't see myself um, yeah. being an academic or anything like yeah. that. I'm more of a hands-on. Yeah, and you absolutely, you absolutely part are. Part of the team. And <laughs> the, the funny thing is, it's, um, I, I think you should be proud of proud of that fact because there's a lot of people that be like no I've signed up to this thing I'm going to see it through yeah. but if you know in your heart of heart that something's not right I think there's a lot of power in accepting that and acknowledging it and then just um yeah pulling the pin early yeah definitely yeah um, so so your mental health like um like you, you, you what do you because you seem to be like a super motivated guy like a, a guy that's always going to find a purpose to get up in the morning and and get training or whatever but was there a period there where like you just lost that interest Completely. Um, were, you, were you married at the time or were you a single man? Or? No, I was, I was a single man in a pretty complicated relationship at the time. Um, but yeah, I kind of finished and there were days where I just wouldn't get up till 11 or 12 and I was just sitting on the couch and I'd have this big plan the night before of what I was going to do and what I was going to achieve for the day and then I'd come to that day and wouldn't get anything done. I just avoided everything. It was like um, I was just procrastinating life really I was just kind of living day by day but not achieving anything um, I was going to events and parties and random things that people would ask me to go to because when you're training for rowing literally everything gets put on yeah, the yeah. on the sideline and you don't get to go to weddings or um, like I even missed my grandparents funerals because I was at New Zealand trials or I was overseas and things like that so anything that anyone asked me to I went to it but my day-to-day life, I was like kind of moping around. For how long, and how do you how did you pull yourself out of that? I don't. Know. Uh, by the way, thanks for sharing this and admitting it. I think it's really it's really cool because I feel like there's a yeah, you know, there's a lot of people that have um, like mental health issues, and it's like a it's like there's an, a chemical imbalance in their in their brain. But then there's people that go through major life upheavals. And one thing I've learned doing this podcast this year is absolutely everyone is carrying around a bag of shit to some degree. Exactly. <laughs> it's just at the size of the bag. Yeah. It's true. Like I don't know one person that hasn't had a shit time in their life, mm. and it's it's not so much like how shit it was or what made it happen. It's just kind of how you get through it. And sometimes you can't see the exit, or you can't see how you're going to get through it. But you do though. It's like um, there's a there's a running saying, for, especially for the longer distances. You just put one foot in front of the other. Yeah, and it's a good metaphor for life as well. And uh, sort of there's a saying: this too shall pass. And everything does. But, yeah, so how, how long did it last for you? It's completely like that. Um, for me, it kind of went for probably nearly two months. Like, I was I was existing as a human, and people on the outside probably didn't see it as much as people really close to me. Because um, so, you, did you have quite a good mask? Are you quite good at just um, the, old, uh, the old, yeah, no, nah, I'm all good? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, like, I think yeah, it's yeah. just the New Zealand way. Like, <laughs> everyone asks you, and you're like, oh, you know, I'm, yeah, all nah, good. I'm nah. just just trying to reassess what I'm going to do and you kind of can talk your way out of it. But You do, you come up with like a, like a, like a, just a one-sentence sort of explanation, don't you? Yeah, yeah. 
And it was funny, like I remember being on the couch um, watching the America's Cup that was happening over in San Fran and thinking, how cool was this? And it was motivating me to get up in the morning and we were winning by eight. And then. Oh, is that the, yeah, that's the one with um, Dean Barker and Oracle. Yeah. Oracle was the biggest yeah. comeback of, yeah. Yeah, so that didn't help to depression either. Like, <laughs> I was getting up every morning and watching Team New Zealand get their ass handed to them. Um, that's right, that was the start of the all, rivalry with Jimmy Spittle. All they had to do was win one race, and I just remember watching that thinking, what the hell? Like, this is fucked up. But, um, yeah, I kind of got through that. I suppose those mornings you're thinking, well, at least I'm not Dean Barker right now. <laughs> yeah, but, Poor Dean. Yeah, it was a funny thing watching the America's Cup from the outside and, and what you think about it and, and what you feel about it when you're watching it as a supporter mm. and then being in the team later on is a completely different thing. But Yeah, yeah. I, we, we, will, we will get to that. Shit, I'm sorry, <laughs> sorry, we'll carry on. We, we've been speaking for like 40, <laughs> 40 minutes already, but it's such a massive life you've had. And it's, I think it's, it's really, really good yeah. um, to hear that you had this massive, massive high and this massive dip and then... Uh, more massive highs again in the, in the future. I think it's encouraging for a lot of people. Yeah, uh, it no. sends a message of hope. So through that time, like, did you did you get any professional help? Did you get any counselling? You try any drugs or anything? Not, um, not recreational prescription. <laughs> no, I I didn't get into um, any drugs or like support drugs. Um, or- Want twenty percent discount on the best earplugs for exercise? Ultra earplugs go in your ears and stay in there. Go to ultraaudio.com, that's U-L-T-R-O, and use the discount code DOM20. That'll save you around $35. That's ultraaudio.com, U-L-T-R-O, and the discount code DOM20. Kind of pills, but I was still seeing the psychologist that we had from rowing, and I remember like, I was seeing him during my year when everything was turning to shit, and I remember even saying to him like, as it was happening, like, this is going to happen. You watch it, like I can see this is coming. And he's like, no, you're just thinking negatively. And then I went and talked to him after I got dropped, and he's like, no, you were, you were right. You saw it coming, and, and that's, mm. just, that's just fucked up. But um, he was really helpful, and, and we talked through a few things, and he was kind of trying to get me motivated about what I could do next or was there another sport that I thought about doing. Because you were still young, right? Yeah. Like was, 20s, in your 20s. I 27, I think, when it all turned to yeah. shit. I felt like I had so much more to give, but I didn't really know where to, to put that energy or that time into, and I was kind of just floating around. And I was seeing the psychologist, and I was getting the help I needed and was trying to stay positive, but I just couldn't see, like, the out. And I was having big weekends on the piss with friends, and I was kind of enjoying that side of life, but still was just lost and, and not following a direction. And it wasn't actually until we kind of did this event with the Halberg's Disability and Sport Foundation, and we did this trip racing um, some Australians around New Zealand doing different tasks like rowing and cycling and, and running and things like that. The team that was actually supporting us was the Green Watch Fire crew from Hamilton, and they were driving us around in the, the vans while we did these events, and like that was all good, and went back to my normal life of just being in despair for a bit, and then <laughs> one day they, they gave me a call and was like, oh, we pretty keen to meet up for a coffee and I met up with two of the guys <coughs> from this crew and they said we think you should join the fire service had you thought had you ever thought I'd about that never even, the idea never even thought about the fire service probably since I was a five-year-old kid like I remember going to the fire station when I was a kid and how amazing was that you get to go on the truck and try on the gear and that was really get, cool get and the then, disappointment when you realize most stations <laughs> don't actually have a pole <laughs> yeah exactly 
Um, and then had never thought about being a fireman ever again. And then these two guys literally said, we think you'd be good for the fire service if you thought about trying. So I went and did a, lot, a ride along with them in Hamilton and, and just kind of found a sense of purpose. And I really enjoyed kind of the camaraderie and, and what was happening in that kind of group. And there was an intake coming up, so I applied and went through all the testing and did all the, the cognitive and the physical testing. And Oh, you'd fly through that, wouldn't you? Well, I thought I did. <laughs> I, kind of, I went through it all and then I got to the interview phase and I had my first formal interview and I'd never, like I'd been a sports person my whole life, I'd never had to sit down with someone and, and power, plead my case why I thought I was going to be a good firefighter and, and that kind of stuff and I remember getting asked these questions and they're like, have you ever had to deal with this and that and I, I explained what I'd dealt with and I remember dropping a few F-bombs, got out of the interview and and the guy that I'd talked to, he rang me up and was like, how was your interview? And I think I, I think it went good. And he, he rang up the guy who interviewed me and he's like, he dropped a lot of swear words. <laughs> as, as, Is that not, as, I would have thought a, the fire service would be quite a sweary yeah, environment. Apparently not in a formal, formal oh, okay. interview. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he rang me back and he's like, oh, it's, it's, it's not looking good. You, you maybe sworn a bit too much. And I was like, ah, shit. So... I remember they kind of told us we'd hear about if we got in or not in the next 10 days and I waited those 10 days and got no phone call so I literally planned a weekend with the boys in Wai- and Fidianga, sorry, and I was heading on the piss and um, that was maybe 15 days after the interview mm. and I was like, oh, surely I haven't made it. They would have let me know by now and I was heading to Fidianga and got the phone call to tell me I was in and that kind of just gave me a... a a revive to like my a, life. and Like a purpose or direction. Yeah, all of a sudden I, I knew what I was about to do and, yeah. and where I was going to head. So, yeah, it was, I suppose something to look forward to, a reason to get out of bed in the morning, is that sort of what you mean? Yeah, yeah. definitely. And, yeah, it was just having purpose. And I think when you're in, in that, that phase of depression, just finding that, that thing that makes you get up or makes you move or, or makes you get outside of the house or out of your comfort zone is, is really important. I know it's literally the hardest thing in the world to find, but mm. just like you said with the running, it's just putting one foot in front of the other just again. keep moving forward. Just yeah. to keep, yeah. keep moving and keep getting some traction. You're funny in a way, aren't you? Because I've um, heard interviews with you before and you talk about your introduction to rowing and it was like the head boy at the school grabbed you and was like, oi, come, come with me, you're rowing. <laughs> yeah. It seems like it's the same with the fire service. Someone's like, oi, you should apply for this. Uh, literally everything in my life has been like that. I got told to start rowing, and I was like, oh, yeah. Not, <laughs> not really doing anything do. else. And then finish rowing, and the fire service guys tell me to do that. And I'm like, ah, sounds all good. Like, Because part of me thinks that's probably like a dangerous way to get out of like a depressive slump. Like, just wait for something. You, wait for, you know, you should be proactive and look for something. And yeah, still, yeah. But um, I suppose everything happens for a reason at the right time. Yeah. And were you, you said you were in a complicated relationship at the, at the time, but did you have, um, were you quite good at like talking with your friends or family or anything or on, on um, you sort of keep things to yourself? Yeah, I thought I was good at talking about it, but yeah. looking back, I probably wasn't and I probably shut down. Like I remember my parents would call and be like, hey, you doing? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, same old. And you just kind of flag it off. But I think the older I've got and the more I've kind of learned from where I was, I'm a lot better at talking about things. And especially with this job in the fire service, some of the shit we see now is pretty um, hard to deal with. Yeah, being able to open up and talk to people yeah. is hugely important. Oh, mate, well, you've come a long way. You should be proud. You should be proud of the work you've you've done. Yeah.
Man, it's a lot. To, it's a lot to go through. It's a lot to go through. Do you think? Um, you're a dad now, right? You got twins? No. Oh. People think they're twins. Now, two just very close together. Yeah. Um, Amelia and Izzy. Yeah. Two little girls. Again, do you think like that's even like peeled off another couple of layers of um, <laughs> oh. Joseph Sullivan? Oh shit! In yeah. terms of the, you know, like, I suppose, vulnerability or openness. Yeah. Like people always say, once you have kids, it changes everything, and I can't. Like. Yeah, it definitely, definitely changes everything. Like your whole perspective on life becomes about them, really, and what what you do to help them achieve is probably the greatest thing. But not everyone has that opportunity, or even wants that opportunity. Yeah. So I completely respect people that don't want to do it. But the yeah, parents that are doing their best to provide for their kids is yeah, it's really important. Yeah. What was that sound? You don't need to go anywhere. No, not an alarm. It's just a phone call that. It goes through the station. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you want to um, talk about this or not, but um, like you were tearing up just a second ago at the point where you were talking about some of the things you see. You, you, you guys are heroes. Are you, you're sort of rolling your eyes at, at that. You know, the, like the, what, what I think the New Zealand fire surface do is far more... Are you sure Sorry. you don't need to go anywhere? <laughs> That's not me. Like what what you guys do in comparison to someone winning a, a gold medal from rowing, I think is is the, the gold medal pales in comparison. You guys do a remarkable job. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about this night. Are, are you talking about car accidents or? It's like it's a weird situation though. When you're when you're at that job or you're at that call, nothing really affects you. You know what you're there for. You you're going through the motions. Um, you're doing what you need to to make the best outcome possible, but. Kind of afterwards, like, I remember when I joined the fire service, um, we didn't really go to medicals or things like that, but after a year we um, had a memorandum of understanding that we would go to purple calls assisting um, uh, St. John's and um, ambulance and, yeah, just anything medical, so purple calls, which is cardiac arrest or suicides or or things like that. <sighs> yeah. Um, yeah, I know. Yeah, I don't know how you um, how you how you process that or deal with that. Like, is there a good like counselling team or support here? I think. Or do you talk about it with each other? Or? Yeah, yeah, you definitely talk about it with the boys, and you kind of um, you almost have some black humour about it, and you kind of. It's a coping mechanism. It's definitely a coping mechanism. Like, if someone turned up and heard what we said about situations we went to. You'd think we're all insane, but I think if you don't do that and you don't distance yourself from the shit you've just seen, it would crush you. And like even now, like I don't think about it much, but like if you do look back and the list just grows of shit that you've seen, and it's pretty hard. Yeah, compounding. Yeah. I, I, I normally don't... find myself, I, like I'm normally pretty good at, like I'm good at talking about it and I'm good at kind of, Seeing as it of what it was, but sometimes it does just overwhelm mm. you and it can catch you off guard. Yeah, I mean, thank you for what you what you do for the country. You and you and your mates here. I mean, I, I had a mate of mine that um um took his own life a, f- a few years ago by by standing in front of a train, and it's like you know you think of uh, obviously like it's horrible for his for his, his immediate circle, like his family and his friends and whatever, and it's horrible for the train driver who. I, I don't know what they see from the, the cockpit or the engine or whatever it's called. Yeah. But then someone's like scraping up, you know. Washing it down. Yeah. It's, yeah, I think like as hard as 
suicide is and how mentally draining it is for that person and it seems like the best ex- escape. I think if they could understand the impact, and it's so hard to see because you're so blinded by the shit that's, that's you think clouding. You, do, you think you're doing everyone a favour. Yeah, you think you're helping everyone by disappearing, but you're not. You're, you're making it so much harder mm. on everyone around you. Yeah, it's really it's it's upsetting and it's sad to think that people think that's the best option for yeah. them, and it's definitely not. Like I'd way rather someone call me up at two in the morning and just let whatever they've got out, like bitch and moan to me as much as you want. Like, yeah, I I agree, I agree. Yeah, I read somewhere from some um, professor that um, when when someone takes their own life, um, they're their pain doesn't go away, it just gets transferred to all the people close to them, and I quite like that. I think there's some truth in that. 100%. Yeah, all right. It's, it's yeah, pretty deep, but oh, yeah, no, I, I, I wish I, there was something that people could understand before they get to that point. Yeah. yeah. it's And it's horrible to, th- to think that someone's in that dark a spot that that seems like the best option. Yeah, exactly. It's such a permanent solution to such a what, – what is, in just the big scheme problem. of your life, a temporary problem. It's just a blip, really, yeah. yeah. If you can 100%. get through that, like uh, get through that moment, can't imagine how many people have actually been in that situation. Like you, you think it's an uncommon thing, but it's so common. There's, I would say, what probably three out of four or three out of five people have thought about it or contemplated mm. it, and just no one talks about it. It's such a taboo thing, but it's so important to talk to your mates and talk to your friends or talk to a complete stranger, like. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, it's, um, it's a it is a Kiwi male thing. Eh? Like we're really good at having those superficial conversations, but it's um yeah, it's hard to go a bit deeper. But it's it's a it's a really good and really important thing to do. Um, you you may not want to answer this, but when you went through the dark days after the um you know, rowing career came to a screeching halt, did, did you ever feel have have days where you felt suicidal or? Um, I was I was pretty lucky. Like I as as dark as it was, I was never like my. I knew my life was worth something and I, I was never in that. Like, I got dark, but I never got to that point where I thought, like, this is this is the way. Um, I always kind of knew I was going to come out of it. I just yeah. didn't know how or when yeah. or what to do about it. But, yeah, I think um, growing up as a kid, I got teased a lot at school and I kind of learned to deal with that kind of situation a bit better. Did you? What were you, really. t- what were you teased about? Um, the big ears, being short. It was, no, it was all part of it. Like I, I was really like, into my sport as a kid, and I was really um, active. But I went to a primary school where every kid was kind of um, from a family that was quite well off, and then my family was wasn't that well off, and we were kind of just battling through life. Um, and it's nothing to be ashamed of. I, I kind of look back at him and was like, why the hell would would people be like that? But kids are just mean. Oh, they are. Like, yeah, you're talking, they're, you're talking they're, about primary and to me. Yeah, it was second. primary school, but yeah. kids are uninten- unintentionally mean. Like and I think assholes. No empathy. No empathy. They're evil. Yeah. And you, see, and you see like little toddlers even younger, they're, they're so selfish. Like yeah. sharing doesn't come yeah. naturally. No, it's, empathy is something you learn, but definitely going through primary school and getting teased and – you look back and think, man, that kid was an asshole, but they didn't know any better. Like, yeah. we're all kids. It was just what happened. Everyone just wants to be part of that group, and if someone's teasing a kid, then you just jump you on jump that. jump on. It's that pack mentality. Yeah, you just join in. So, yeah, I kind of went through that, and I think because I reacted badly when I was getting teased and I lashed out and fought back, and I was very quick to lose my temper. 
<laughs> I, I just became a target, and it kind of just carried on from there. But I think had I not gone through all that shit, and like I was the youngest of four siblings, and I think my older brother teasing me, and he may have had some issues from my sisters, and I was kind of the punchy trick, bag at the end. Yeah, I was the punchy bag at the end of the line. Yeah. So when it got to school, and someone teased me, I lashed out real quick, and. I think as shit as it was as a kid, it taught me so much more resilience as I got older. And I think it made me stubborn and it made me more driven for sport as I got older. So, yeah, even in my darkest days, after getting dropped from rowing, I, suicide was still never an option yeah. for me. Oh, that's so lucky. In some ways, they're probably tools that maybe helped you. Yeah, definitely. I've got some friends on Facebook now that are, and they'll comment on posts and whatever, and I'll be like... You motherfucker, you made, <laughs> you made my fourth form year hell. Like, you were a major asshole to me. Yeah. It sticks with you, right? It definitely sticks with you, but I think it's, it's, it's how you can use that to benefit yourself as well. So I, I remember it being the shittest time of my life when I was a kid, but then as I got older, I used that to drive me. Um, when I was doing mm. sport, I used that to, to prove people wrong. I hated being told I couldn't do something. And my coach, <laughs> you were my coach at my coach at high school knew that. Like he would literally come down when I was putting my boat on the water, and he's like, "Look, everyone's a lot better than you. You're probably going to get your ass kicked. Just do your best and see what happens." And I'm like, "Fuck you!" And I'd, I'd go out and smash the race and, and win it by a mile, and then he'd come back and he'd just be smiling at me. And I'm like, you just, "Oh, so he knew how to push he, your he buttons. Just, just knew how to manipulate it." Like, You're right? Yeah, he knew what would piss me off and. And I'd just prove him wrong. And, yeah, it was kind of funny looking back. Like, I didn't really know he was doing it at the time, but now that I know. You can see it. You can see yeah. what he's doing. And I'm like, ah, it's that easy to do to people, which is mm. scary. Yeah. Like, so easy to manipulate people um, to get what you need. Yeah. But, so, yeah, manipulation is a good word. They probably call it psychology. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. I guess if it's a positive thing, it's psychology. And if, it's, <laughs> if it's a negative thing, it's manipulation. Yeah, it's hard, though, because it's like years later, you know, when just before you went to London for the 2012 Olympics, where you won that gold, and uh, the selector said, oh, you're, you're performing shit. Maybe that's what they were trying. Maybe that was a <laughs> yeah. level of manipulation. Yeah, you'd hope so. Otherwise, they'd just be... Arseholes. <laughs> yeah, bullies. Yeah. Um, man, we've been talking for 59 minutes, and we haven't even got to uh, <laughs> one, let alone two, of your America's Cup wins. So. Yeah. So how did that happen? You, you mentioned before that, like the rowing and like the fire service, um, that sort of just came into your life at the right time? Yeah, so when I was on those kind of dark days, um, after rowing had kind of finished, um, a guy called David Slyfield, who was part of the High Performance Sport New Zealand um, kind of team, he was doing a study on Olympians and medalists and was trying to figure out, like, is there an X factor as to what makes us who we are and, and what drives us to achieve and win medals and things like that. And we just had a probably a good yarn for a good six hours about everything that had led into to what got me to the Olympics and, and how we won and things like that. And he was also working with Team New Zealand at the time um, for the San Fran campaign. And I can't remember if it was before or after, but he literally just said to me, You'd be a really good fit for Team New Zealand. Have you, have you ever thought about that? And I was why, like, why did he think you'd be a good fit for Team New Zealand? Because you, you were in a like a like a two person team. Yeah. Um, so you go from a two person team to a very very big team. I think it was just um, just the structure, the, the and... mental side of it, like just how I. I'm not 100 percent what he saw, but I'm glad he did, and 
Maybe it was just your your ability to like just do what you're told, and you know they say yeah. they say do this amount of work, and you just you just do it like a workhorse. Yeah, I, potentially. I, I definitely didn't always do what I was told. <laughs> <laughs> we, we were always trying to push the boundaries and, and figure out different ways to do things, but I think that might have been part of it too because I I know that the team mentality in Team New Zealand is never status quo. It's always trying to find a new option or or a thing that's going to make it better or faster or easier or or anything like that, but yeah, had these big chats with David, and then um, he kind of said I'd be a good fit for the team, and had I ever thought about it, and I was like, yeah, yeah, but then nothing really happened for probably two years, and I got into the fire service and went down that path and moved up to Auckland, because that was the only place to get a job in the fire service at the time, and literally, I was on my way to work one morning, and David rang and was like, Team New Zealand are looking for some people, um, I'll put your name down, so expect a call, and Next day, I got a call from um, Glenn Ashby, and that was kind of it. He asked me if I wanted to come down and have a look at the team and, and give it a go. So I went down and started doing some gym sessions, and we were at that stage. Um, team New Zealand had pretty much fallen apart after San Francisco, and there was pretty much a core bunch of guys and, and girls left that were kind of trying to build the team back up from nothing. And I borrowed test boat off the Italians um, that weren't going to compete that year. Or that campaign, and we were putting that together at the time. And yeah, I was just literally, I was going to do my full time job as a fireman, and then on my days off, I was going down to Team New Zealand and and training with them and, and helping out wherever I could. And I probably did that for a year before I actually got a contract to join the team. And that's when we put the catering together, and yeah, it was on that whole path. And yeah, I was pretty lucky to be a part of it. Kind of when they came up with the idea of cycling and. I was involved then, um, so I started doing a lot of the testing for that and kind of going down that path, and we had to keep it a massive secret for as long as possible. Oh, yeah, because you, so, so you're, you're rolling Tim, you sound as a grinder, and yeah, that's so traditionally done by um, hand movement, but yeah. yeah, you sort of reinvented the wheel in a way. And yeah, yeah, so I'm not very good at explaining. I skip past things very quickly, but yeah, I got hired as a, well, not hired, but I got brought into the team to be a hand grinder and, and, and doing that, and then all of a sudden... Like I was pretty fit from rowing and in my past uh, we did a lot of cross-training as cyclists so I was a good person to be testing out the, mm. the situation. There. But in, in terms of transferable skills, what, what is it just a good aerobic engine or what? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Rowing makes you, I don't know if you can get much fitter than being a rower. Like it hits not only your legs, your back and your arm, like it literally hits every part of your body. Um, and you could like did it for 14 years nearly, so my base fitness was pretty incredible back then. Um, it's a lot harder now that I'm getting older, but <laughs> when I was nice and young, um, yeah, I could kind of do whatever I was doing and do it for a long time if I needed to. Yeah, so doing a lot of the testing for the cycling was it was hard work and it was done in a little container um, to keep it secret, and yeah, it was... What, what, what do you mean a little container? Well, like, like uh, sorry... Uh, um, like a, like a shipping container. Really? Was it actually? Yeah. So we had this test bike in a shipping container that run a few um, hydraulic pumps, and, yeah, we were testing how it would work and if it would work. And it definitely doesn't work like you think. Normally when you're on a bike, you're moving forward, so there's inertia. But when you're on a on a bike moving a hydraulic pump, the, the top and the bottom of the pedal stroke are dead, so it was adapting to that and learning 
No uh, idea. No get, idea what you're talking about. How to get past that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I assumed, and I'm guessing a lot of people listening to this would assume that you were like in um, like the Millennium High Performance Sports Institute <laughs> or somewhere like really state of the art. No. Uh, so when yeah, when Team New Zealand lost in San Fran, they kind of lost the base down in Windy Quarter, and we just moved into a, a tent and container world. So. Yeah, we had these big tents that they set up on top of containers and then everything else was in containers. So, yeah, when it rained, like, the the base pretty much got flooded and there was water under the boats, like, or water in the sheds and, and things like that. So, yeah, it was very agricultural. And, yeah, people look at Team New Zealand and think there's a huge budget and lots of money and um, it definitely wasn't the case. It was definitely a lot of bunch of, just a whole bunch of Kiwis and quite a few Italians at the time, um, just working with the best, well, the best they could with the tools they had and we were pretty limited to everything. We had a pretty low budget leading into Bermuda and, yeah, everything was done on a shoestring. And I think as Kiwis, when we're pushed back into that corner, we do pretty well. Yeah, that old, um, as they say, number eight wire mentality. Yeah, remind, remind me and everyone else what happened in Bermuda. So, so you won. Was it close? Was that against Jimmy Spittle? Uh, so we had to go through the Louis Vuitton um, Cup first, so you have to race um, with GB, Artemis, French. Yeah, we had to go through all those different races just for the opportunity. So you win the Louis Vuitton Cup, and then you get the opportunity to race for the America's Cup, which was Oracle and Jimmy Spittle. Right. Yeah, I, I do remember that. I'm going to pause you there. I've known um, Blair Turk for quite a while, and um, yeah. we were texting each other when he was over there, and I was like, if you win one of those um, yeah, Louis Vuitton bags, can you like bring it home for me? Yeah. And then you guys won, and you're on stage, and you each got a Louis Vuitton bag that you won, and you all yeah. threw them out into the fucking crowd. Yeah. Why didn't you uh, do that? Your missus must have been furious. I definitely didn't throw mine into the oh, crowd. You? <laughs> <laughs> you got to remember when we're over in Bermuda – the crowd that's in front of us is actually our own team, right? And, oh, and okay. Like all our own partners, <laughs> and like, so you think it's a big random crowd, but it's our own families okay, and, and gotcha. things like that. So people are just throwing it to their wives and partners and things like that. But then all the bags got taken in and actually spread throughout the team. So the sailing team didn't actually get the bags in the end. Oh, okay, yeah. Cause I'm guessing. So how many people are on the boat? So I think there was there was only seven of us. Seven, so seven on the boat, but how big is the entire team, New Zealand? Uh, 120 something people oh shit yeah so I think that's another pe- thing people don't see is like people see the sailing team when we're racing and that's kind of it but there's boat builders designers there's shore crew there's uh, people in the office there's lawyers there's everything and mm. it's just this massive working machine with everyone on the same kind of page fighting for the same goal um, to achieve winning the America's Cup so yeah, and what a thing to be involved with. Yeah. And, and what, sits, what sits better with you? Like being um, the you know, the poster boy in a two-person team <laughs> winning a gold medal or just being like a, a fa- yeah, essentially a face in the crowd on the boat? I, I mean, I mean, we, when you think of Team New Zealand, it's like, you, you know, I suppose you think of like, you know, Blair and Pete or whatever. Yeah. You can pro- most, most New Zealanders can probably name them, I guess, maybe maybe one or yeah, two others. I don't know. Yeah, would be able to name Blair and Pete. And, and there's then, all, all you workers. Then we're all in the background, but... I I enjoy that side of it. I yeah. I enjoy just being part of a team, and it's it's something to be part of a crew, as small or as large as it is, working for that same achievement. And I, I think that's probably what I enjoy. Like I kind of do it throughout my whole life, whether it be rowing the fire service or, or Team New Zealand. Like yeah, we're we're in a fire, like we're we're a crew in the fire service. We turn up to an incident, and we're doing the best we can to achieve the best outcome possible. And, 
yeah, it kind of transfers through everything I do in life. I feel like you need that in, life, in, in your life. and We probably all do, but you in particular, you need something that, you know, I feel like you thrive on that. Yeah, I think I just like having a purpose. Yeah. I, when I'm training, I, I'm never good at doing it just on my own. Like I have to have a reason why I'm doing it yeah. or a purpose or almost someone that if I don't do it, I'm letting someone down. And I think now for me at the moment, it's like I kind of use my family as much as they say that they don't put pressure on me, I, I put the pressure on myself. Like I want to achieve so I can support them and help them and, and give them a good life. So, Do you mean like from a financial perspective or? Life experience, yeah, really. Right. Like for me. Um, and just be someone your daughters can be proud of. Yeah. Money's never really been a driving factor for me. enjoy having it and I'd like to have more, but <laughs> I don't think I would have joined the fire service if I was, yeah, I was yeah. striving to be really rich. Like I just – I find things that I enjoy and I find purpose in, and that's what I get the most out of. But definitely for my family, I, I just want them to be proud of me, but I also want to give them opportunities um, to enjoy life and, and try different things and hopefully travel a bit more too. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, that money's a funny thing, eh? Because it's like obviously you, 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 know, you, you need it to a certain degree to be, ha- to be happy, but then when you've got enough, it's like you know, it's, a, it's a point of diminishing returns, isn't it? Yeah, I don't think you'll ever meet a rich person that thinks they have enough money. Like, no, I think you get to a weird. point and everyone just wants more. But yeah, I think it's 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 finding that sweet spot where you can provide for your family comfortably, but also have good life experiences and and enjoy what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. That's far more yeah, important. I'd like to have enough money that I don't have to go to work all the time. But <laughs> <laughs> you've got um a, yeah a hell of a commute. So you live. Tauranga at the moment. Tauranga, and you live in. Uh, you work in uh, Kawarau, which yeah. um, is, is where we're sitting here, in one yeah. of the offices at the fire service. Which it's there's um, it's like a timber mill town, but it's a sleepy little town. Yeah. Um, it's like a one hour commute, maybe a hundred k's. Yeah, it's just over an hour. Yeah, yeah it's hundred k's each way. Do you? I was thinking about this just just before, like we, you know, we um, touched upon some fairly emotional stuff before. Um, is is that part of the reason you enjoy being in a like a sleepier sort of fire station? Uh I, Less action, or no? I'd prefer to be at a busy station. Like, yeah, would you? I I enjoy going to calls, and I enjoy the challenges that they provide. Like each call is always different, and um, as hard as they can be, it's it's kind of you feel a sense of purpose being at it, and you're hopefully doing a better job or giving um, the outcome a better option by being there and being part of it, or or helping stop it. Mm. I guess so. For me. Sitting at a quiet, sta- quiet station, it's not really something I enjoy. I kind of get bored, get lost and bored, yeah, and, yeah. and find myself becoming lazy. But um, yeah, it's it's a means to an end. I'm looking forward to trying to get into Tauranga and being out in the community a bit more. Yeah, it's funny, eh? like you you mentioned before, like about um, the goal is to get positive outcomes. What you, what what you're doing here is. You know, so much more important than winning like a a, a boat <laughs> racing trophy or a medal. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like the stakes yeah. are, so, you know, there's there's so, there's so many more of you around the country, and um, everyone in the fire service is under the radar, but yeah. the the job is so fucking important. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think that if we weren't there, like what would happen to a lot of people? Like, mm. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's an honour to be able to be part of it, and I think firefighters and anyone that's in that kind of support role, be it police or ambulance, get overlooked for what they actually do for people. And it's probably not till someone's in that situation where you desperately need us 
that you actually appreciate what we do. But yeah, I know for a lot of people, yeah, it's just being able to help your community and help people around you. No one ever does it for the money in this job because if you were joining the fire service to be rich, you're yeah, delusional. But <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's hey. that, that sense of purpose, I guess. Yeah, so um, there's probably a lot of people listening to this. I feel like a lot of people have gone through some sort of weird shit like change over the last couple of years with the pandemic and whatnot, and there's a lot of people that are probably like thinking, oh, I'm doing this job, do I really enjoy it? Is this what I'm going to do for the best rest of my life? That are thinking about like a career transition, and not necessarily the fire service, but just from one job to something else. And it seems like a terrifying prospect, I think, for a lot of, a lot of people. What would your advice be to those people? <laughs> I'm terrible at that as well because <laughs> I wouldn't even know where to start when yeah, it comes yeah. to changing a job. But I think if you don't find purpose in what you're doing, you probably do need to start looking for something else, um, as hard as it may be. Probably try and secure that job before you leave the one you're in. But that's some good advice. I don't know. I think the pandemic really brought back to people. I think as hard as it was being locked down, I think people realised how much nicer it was to be home with their family and how important it was to spend time with them. And I think that's what businesses are struggling with now is people going back to work and they're realising, I actually really enjoyed being with my family. Like, why am I doing this to myself? Like, Everyone goes to work to, to make more money, to provide better for their family, but people forget that their family just wants them around. They mm. would rather you be there than be at work for 100 hours a week. So it's yeah, finding that work-life balance is really difficult. Yeah. And I think everyone's having to adjust to it, whether it be businesses and or employees. Yeah, I think it was a bit of a reset for people, eh? and a chance to reassess your priorities. And also now everyone knows that you can <laughs> actually work from home yeah. effectively. Yeah, very effectively <laughs> for a lot of jobs. Um, yeah, not yeah. so much for this job, but yeah, yeah um, definitely for a lot of lot of jobs, working at home and, and being able to pick up your own kids from school is is really important. Yeah, yeah hugely so, hugely so. So, how old are your kids now? Uh, three and one and a half. But oh shit! So they they know nothing about you. You're no. just you're just you're, you're, wow. Oh, uh, they're they, on for a treat. They have no clue, which is. Like, quite fun. Like, my daughter's... They wouldn't even know what an Olympic gold medal is. No, like, my daughter pulls it out and smashes it against the window. Or like, <laughs> have um, some respect. Yeah. My, my wife put all my medals in a vase one day, and I was like, what are you thinking? Like, my oldest, when she was about one and a half, pulled them out, just started smashing them against the vase and shattered the vase, and I was like, that was always going to happen. But, yeah, to her, they're just playthings and they're, like, tokens, I guess, some toys, but... Yeah, hopefully one day they kind of can be proud of me for what I've done. Well, I think I think they definitely will be, but I think um, the the proudness of what you've done on the water is going to be eclipsed by you know just how proud they are of the job you've done as their father. Hopefully, yeah, that's, yeah, that's the most important thing to me. Really. Oh, one hundred percent it is. Yeah, I, I can tell you're super proud of them, and now, you know you know I've followed each other on Instagram for a while, and I see you playing on the trampoline with them and stuff. <laughs> Seems like you're doing the dad thing pretty well. Yeah, I probably enjoy that the most. Um, yeah, something cool about when you get home and they're just excited to see you, and then all of a sudden they're very excited because they know that you'll jump on the tramp with them or you'll take them biking or <laughs> the massive list of things that they want to do with you, even when you don't yeah. get yeah. it, oh, or God. just finished a massive training that they don't see all that kind of hurt. But yeah, it's just sucking it up and, and doing it. I really enjoy it. Yeah, it's that's good fun. That's got to be the that's got to be the weirdest sort of 
juxtaposition, I guess, like having like a like a, a hard day. And a hard day at work for you is a fucking hard day. Yeah. And then going home to just that like unconditional love and, love and necessity dis- is there. Love and disrespect. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. They don't give a fuck what I've done at work. They just <laughs> no, daddy's no, home no. and we're going to go play on the tramp now. So, yeah. In a way, I suppose it stops you from like my. I mean, it, the, the stuff never goes away, but I suppose it forces you to push shit down and just be present and be in the moment. I think it just helps you appreciate what you've got, and as, as shit as a day at work or whatever can be, taking life back to its simple form of just enjoying being around each other and who you're with, whether it be friends, family, or or kids or anything like that. Just appreciate the time you have with each other. Yeah. It's, yeah, just going out with your mates and having a social drink sometimes can can be such um, a therapeutic thing um, for a lot of people. Yeah, so that human connection, eh? It's so just connections, yeah. Don't, yeah. don't isolate yourself. And mm. I think that's the scary thing with social media is we see like all these things happening and we, <laughs> we can sit on the couch and kind of feel like we're part of it, but being out there and actually doing it is probably the most important thing. Yeah, that's, that's so true because you, you have that – I don't know, I'm, well, I do anyway, that sometimes on social media you have that FOMO, the fear of missing out. Yeah, and it's exactly. like what you're doing by being in that moment is that you're skipping over your actual life and you're missing out on that particular moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, how, did, how did you and your wife meet? Is that, was, she the, was, she, was she the complicated one from before? Uh, no, she was definitely she's not the fresh complete, one. She was the fresh one. So um, she was a, she's a yachting groupie? No. <laughs> no, no, no such thing. Uh, not at all. Um, when I met my wife, uh, we actually met on Tinder. I'd just come out of a, a tough relationship and was just kind of having fun with life again. Um, and met Jordan, and she was pretty, I guess, naive to everything that had, had happened. She'd never followed sport. Like, I picked her up for a date and took her out for a date. and With your gold medal on? Not with my gold medal <laughs> on, but I had a sponsored car at the time, and she, oh, didn't, okay. she didn't even look at the side of it. She was just like, oh, I had your name in season. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, oh, it's just a work car. Um, so I took her out on this date and had this big chat, and I never mentioned anything about the Olympics or sport or anything like that. And we just had a really good connection. And it wasn't until like the third date that she actually looked at the side of the car and she's like, Have you, have you won a gold medal or something? And I was like, Yeah, I kind of do sport for a living. She's like, Ah. Oh. I thought you just did it for fun or something. <laughs> and I was, like, so, I was like, what do you think I actually do for a job? And she's like, I don't, I don't actually know. Like, she, uh, she, she must have Googled. She, she must have. She, she had no clue. And I think that's what I appreciated about it more. Like, yeah, yeah. I think after I won a gold medal, it was funny. Like You meet people and they kind of don't give you the time of the day. And then they go talk to someone else and then someone else tells them what you've just done. And all of a sudden they come back and try to talk to you again and get a real in-depth. And I just don't have time for those people. Like, Oh, that's, a te- that's terrible. It's, it's so that's strange. And, and people do it so often. Like they completely ignore you and then they realise that you've done something important and then they're like, oh, like they want something out of you. Yeah. It's, it's strange. But it's so weird. I, I've, I've got a mate that used to play in the All Blacks and, you, you know, you'd get people like that. But you'd also get, like, drunk people that come up and be like, <laughs> I I I don't even know who you are. Yeah. But you think you're hot shit, and yeah. it's like get the fuck out. Yeah. I always find that the funniest. Like, yeah, they have no idea what you've done, but someone's told them you've done something, and they kind of try to dress you down and bring you yeah. down to their level. <laughs> like, it's such a New Zealand mentality. Yeah, like, yeah. fuck you for achieving something. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Come down and be a piece of shit like me. Like, <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. I love that. It's, I love that. It's good fun, though. That's cool. So how long have you guys been together now? Just over seven years, nearly yeah. eight years now. And is she, because you have to take time, unpaid leave from the fire service to do the um, America's Cup stuff. Does that end up being like a, a pay increase or a pay decrease to, to go to <laughs> the stable salary of the fire service? <laughs> yeah, so the first time I think I joined Team New Zealand, it was a pay decrease. I made more on the fire service, um, but that just showed the funds at the time. The, the funds at the time. And as tough as it was in Team New Zealand then, and no one was really getting paid more. I think that was the best part, as everyone was there for the right reasons. No one was there for the money. Everyone was there to, to bring the cup back to New Zealand again. And that was that was a cool mentality to be part of. Um, but yeah, then going back to the fire service was nice. And then the next time I got into Team New Zealand, it was a bit better. Uh, we got paid properly this time. And yeah, and then come back to the fire service was a bit more difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's yeah. all part of it. And I think... Just having that experience the second time with Team New Zealand was really good as well. Yeah, that was cool. So the first one was in Bermuda. The second one was um, the one that happened. Um, oh, it was sort of when the rest of when the rest of the world was still locked down, really, wasn't it? Yeah, we massive were, sporting event was happening like in New Zealand. New Zealand was in lockdown. We were like, I remember the day. What was he? He was our physio, and he was kind of in in charge of our medical side of Team New Zealand as well. And he's like, "Boys, this this pandemic is real. Like it's happening. People are going to die." Like we need to start getting a bit more onto it, and we were like, "Yeah, it's just something, something different. Like it's it's all going to pass by." And then the next day, he's like, "Yeah, we're packing up. Like we're going into lockdown. Like grab the grinders now, take them home. Um, we don't know how long we're going to be in lockdown." And I was like, "This is just strange." And I like it was one of those weird. Like it almost felt like an Armageddon moment. Like, yeah, no, no one really knew what it meant. No one, no one, like everyone was like, oh, this is just going to be for a couple of days and then we'll be out. But yeah, and then five weeks went past and it was it was abnormal. Like my wife was still working from home. She was still having to work full time. So all of a sudden we had our oldest daughter, um, Amelia, and I became the full-time carer. And I'd been working for Team New Zealand and we were working like seven days a week. And then all of a sudden I was at home and I was put in front of this one-year-old and like you're in charge and I'm like shit <laughs> I had to readjust and learn how to be a parent and it was it was hard for like the first week and I remember my wife just glaring at me and giving me the evils and <laughs> I wasn't doing it how she did it and we had argument after argument and I was like just let me do my thing and it was it was a weird kind of concept to, to like I was a parent and I was a father, but I hadn't really been doing any day-to-day yeah. parenting. It seems like you and your wife needed to go on a road trip overnight to the <laughs> yeah. south of France or somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely know after that week, we definitely um, things came good and we kind of readjusted and it was a hard time. And like everyone mm. had just been thrown into absolute turmoil and like it was, you know, how could you not be stressed mm. and, and get into each other? But after that week... Life just became really simple and it became really easy. And I was like out, like I'd get up really early, do all my training that I had to do, and then I'd just spend the day with my daughter, be outside digging holes or on the grass crawling <laughs> around or like balancing on the retaining wall, which my wife also didn't like. And my, <laughs> my one-year-old learning to walk on on the retaining wall, but I was just impressed by her balance and she loved it. So. Oh, kids, yeah. kids are so bouncy as well, aren't they? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, just, I just can never get over how quickly they learn and 
like they don't even know what danger is. So yeah, for her, she just thought it was fun, and I was getting enjoyment out of it. And yeah, oh, what, it was, a, what a cool, it's really simple. Cool experience. I know it was a horrible experience for a lot of people, but yeah, a lot of cool experiences to take from there if you can find them. I, yeah. I, I, I'll be interested to see stats like down the down the track somewhere about you know how many like relationship breakups there were or divorces oh. or whatever. Because I think a lot of people who probably had a relationship with their partner where they're like ships in the night or, yeah. you know, you just have like a brief conversation about the kids after a work day or whatever. Suddenly we're in the house together for weeks on end going, shit, yeah. shit we, we've grown so far apart. I never realised that. Yeah, it would be a strange thing to look back and see what shift it made yeah. in countries and people like at that point in time. Yeah. Some for the good and some for the bad. Like. Yeah. So what's next for you? Is there another America's Cup campaign in you? Or I feel like you're going to need some um, – yeah, some sort of sporting thing to focus on. I don't know. Still yeah. a lot of lot of a lot of very good years left in you. <laughs> did you ever do that coast to coast with Mahe Drysdale? Yeah, I did. Oh, you the did? Coast to coast. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a bad coast to coast. Looking at it, like um, I did the coast to coast, but I was still full time rowing training and went into it really naive about how hard it was going to be. And I remember lining up on the, the west coast and everyone just sprinting off the beach <laughs> for. For the bikes, and I was like, "Why the hell is everyone sprinting? Like, why would you do this? This is a long way to go." And then once I got to the bike and saw the lead group had disappeared, and I was with this bunch of old people that were just doing it to achieve it, and I was like, "That's why you sprint." <laughs> I was in the slow group and just trying to like rally them up to move forward. And yeah, because like, the because the, the, the peloton thing in cycling or, or like riding in a in a bunch uh, makes it like a lot easier, doesn't it? Like twenty percent or thirty percent oh, easier. It makes it so much easier. Yeah. And if you can sprint off the beach and be with that fast group right off the bat, then you're literally an hour or two faster by right. the time you get to the run, and then it all kind of compounds um, if you leave it. So yeah, I went into it really slow and, and thought I'll take my time and I'll, I'll achieve and then. <laughs> Yeah, don't oh, worry. I went through it and was like, why the hell did I do that? Yeah. I could go so much faster. But yeah, don't worry, Mahe. We'll make up time on the on the, on yeah. the kayaks. Yeah, I actually because Mahe ran off and he got on the front group and I managed to catch him on the run, and I just had destroyed myself trying to catch him. And then all of a sudden, coming down the hill, he just ran past me again, and I just had to watch him go. And I was like, oh. Yeah, that, that goat, sucks, goat's, goat's pass ain't no joke, eh? Hey? No shit, no. That's a serious it, day out. It's a serious day out. But yeah. as much as I hated it at the time, I also loved it. Like it was such a weird thing to look back at. I remember being on the bike coming into Christchurch, and I was so tired and so just ruined. Like I'd hit a traffic light, and I must have just missed like the point where they had all the lights cordoned off and they were letting the cycles through. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. And I came into Christchurch and I hit every red light. And I remember just abusing the lights. Like I'd, I'd have to stop and I'd just be yelling at it. And people in the cars around me must have just thought I was absolutely crazy. But I was just so delusional and I just needed to finish that damn race. Mm. Yeah, it was just funny. But, man, it was such a cool achievement to finish. Yeah, it's an epic event. Oh, yeah, so... Yeah, sorry, I was getting sidetracked there. Is it another America's Cup in you? Maybe? Yeah, um, yeah. I'm training at the moment, yeah. trying to, to be the best I can come the trial um, coming up. So, yeah, I we're going back to the bikes again. So I've gone from having really strong legs to really strong upper body for the last cup to having to readjust my body again and, and get my leg strength back up. So just kind of going through the, the motions at the moment and trying to put myself in the best position I can be for the trial and, and hopefully make it. Um, but, yeah, we'll see what happens. I'd love to be part of the team again. I just I love being in that atmosphere of giving everything I can to to uh, power that boat and 
and be in the team and and achieve and hopefully if we can win it in Barcelona we can uh, be in a better position to bring it back to New Zealand again so yeah yeah I'd love to be a part of it but we'll just see what happens that'd be awesome and, and what else in the future more kids more kids planned <laughs> or no no more kids I've already been to the doctor oh have you had my right. uh, had my, my nuts tampered with but uh, <laughs> yeah I'm just enjoying being a father as well so yeah whatever kind of happens I'll, I'll readjust to to what's happening and, and go forward I've kind of I've never had a really solid plan in my life, so mm. everything seemed to work out okay <laughs> for you, though, hasn't it? Just by sort of following your, yeah. I don't know, just following following what feels right at any given moment, I guess. Yeah, I think at some points people get so focused on achieving one thing that they they miss opportunities coming around them. So um, yeah, I kind of just take opportunities when they come and try not to say no to too many things and, and see where it leads. I've been pretty lucky. I've had my ups and my downs, but yeah, more ups than downs. I'm pretty grateful for what I've been able to achieve and, and the opportunities I've been given. So. Oh, you should be. You should be. And I think that's probably a good place to end it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, amazing. Joseph Sullivan, uh, one gold medal, two America's Cups so far, two beautiful kids, and an amazing career with the fire service. And you're just getting – how old are you now? Uh, 35. You're just getting fucking started. <laughs> Hopefully. Not even midlife yet. Not even half time on the clock. <laughs> yeah. There's a few, few more things I'd hope to achieve, but we'll see what happens. Yeah. Amazing. Oh, whatever it is, I look forward to following you. Thanks for being so generous with your um, time and your stories today, mate. No worries. It's Appreciate been it. Good chin to you. Cheers. Yes, likewise. That was the incredible Joseph Sullivan. What a guy. Hey, if you haven't done so already, wherever you get your podcast from, most likely Spotify or Apple, why don't you chuck us a five-star rating? Or um, if the platform allows it, write a review as well. I read all of them, and I appreciate all of them so much. And uh, someone was explaining to me how it um, impacts the algorithms. So the more ratings we get and the more reviews we get, the better the podcast goes. Also, you can get a hold of me by email, domharveynz at gmail.com or on Instagram, domharveynz. I always welcome your feedback and also your guest suggestions. There's some amazing people out there doing some incredible stuff, but unless you guys bring them to my attention, um, I can't get them on the podcast. All right, once again, thanks very much. Really, really genuinely appreciate having you guys here and hope to see you next week on Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Want 20% discount on the best earplugs for exercise? Ultra earplugs go in your ears and stay in there. Go to ultraaudio.com, that's U-L-T-R-O, and use the discount code DOM20. That'll save you around $35. That's ultraaudio.com, U-L-T-R-O, and the discount code DOM20. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? 
United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.